Welcome to the Heroes Journey Economy podcast. Today we've got Ari Kaplan, who is a pioneer in analytics, particularly in sports, and he's now working at Data Robot, applying those analytics, continuing that work in sports, but also looking at how to take analytics and transform companies. So as we look at our hero's journey and we look at data that's available to us that we could leverage, Ari's a very interesting person to talk to about the resistance that people have gotten from some of these this analytics and how companies and people are overcoming the resistance on data and analytics in their lives. So here goes. Hey, welcome everyone uh, to, to the Hero's Journey podcast. Today we've got Ari Kaplan who's head of industry marketing for Data Robot. Welcome, Ari. Hi, nice to be here, Mike. Yeah, so we start talking about the hero's journey. One of the major themes is information. We're kind of going through this renaissance of transformation, not too dissimilar from the renaissance after the dark ages. And a common theme between that age and this age, the printing press, and it was the ability to communicate information, although we're we're in that same mode right now. It's a heavily quoted thing, but a teenager in Africa with a cell phone has more information at their fingertips than Bill Clinton did when he was president. And so there's a lot of information out there. You work in an analytics area and AI area. Let's start digging into this. One of the things that's big with the Renaissance verse today is that some of this data can really dispel conventional wisdom. What we think is conventional wisdom is based on maybe previous person's actions or perceptions, but aren't necessarily reinforced with any kind of data. Let's jump into that. Where do you see maybe data, AI, analytics really challenging people's conventional wisdom around certain areas? I think that really across all over the board across all different industries, and some of my focus has been in the sports industry, having worked uh, with Major League Baseball teams over 30 years, as well as with retail and CPG industries, um, healthcare, government, manufacturing, really across the board, you know, there's that, it seems at first to be a dichotomy, behavioral science, what people's, you know, conventional wisdom or oral history or prior experience tells you, and then in many ways, either supported or uh, contradicted uh, or different options from the vast amounts of data. So, you know, take sports, for example. If you're looking at football, the, the numbers say go for, you know, go for the next opportunity with fourth down and only one or two yards to go. That's what the numbers say. But what conventionalism says, be more conservative and uh, just punt the ball to the other team. And a lot of that is you know, it's psychological. It's you know, you're you're worried of making uh, the wrong decision versus making no decision. And um, one interesting thing is study of umpires or referees across all sports across all countries consistently find that they if there's a chance to make a call and get it wrong versus it's called beat the whistle, not make a call at all. Uh, by and large, uh, they're unanimously they choose to you know, be risk averse. So what, what's fascinating is now that there's huge amounts of data being collected really across all, all different industries, from internet things and sensors to uh, video and, and, so, and images and sound, um, that now you can use AI and, and find, uh, you know, different courses of action that kind of buck that traditional trend. 
Yeah. It's interesting you mentioned about the referees and umpires because I remember, uh, I think it was last year or the year before, when they had the replacement referees in football. Very quickly, Vegas noticed that these replacement referees were highly influenced by the home crowd. It was changing some of those point spreads because because they were you know less experienced. They were hesitant to call penalties against the home team because of the response that they were getting from the crowd. And it was just, it was an interesting, I think they picked up on it like week two or three where they were seeing some friends. And of course that was influencing the games. But yeah, so can we talk a little bit about your back? You've gone deep into, for lack of a better term, what maybe more people know about the money ball. You've really looked at stats in sports, assisted major league baseball teams. Well, it seems like that's one of the areas is that because the amount of data, the direct competitive advantage you can have from using this data, it's been held up as an area example because I think a lot of people get those sports and then get the numbers, but it's it can translate to other things. Is that the place it started or is that the place it became popular? Which- yeah, and, and sports, I started, uh, I was a student at Caltech in Pasadena, California uh, back in the 80s and came up with better ways to evaluate players, kind of like the pre-Moneyball era, when there was just sparse amounts of information, like box scores of one data point per player per game. And um, there was conventional wisdom you know, that was being bucked. For example, one of the big honors was automating what was called the Earl Weaver Splits Program, which was a, a well-known manager who bucked conventional wisdom and said, I'm going to construct my lineup who's playing for me based on if the opposing pitcher is a lefty or a righty. And furthermore, I'm going to um, pinch hit or bring in a, a relief pitcher based on if he's a lefty or a righty, how that matches up. And he got you know, severely ostracized in the media that he was ruining the game, but his attitude was, you know, yell at me all you want. I'm here to win games, and, and this game is going to help you win. So I worked uh, as a teenager with the Orioles, helping automate that. And then, you know, fast forward, there's really around 2007 when uh, Sport Vision came out, which reported on every pitch tons of information, like their velocity and launch angles of uh, balls that were hit. Uh, so, so now you're getting, you know, uh, thousands of points of data per game, and you can more finely understand how you position defense and, uh, have strategy. And then the, the last like two uh, pivotal points was uh, just a couple of years ago where baseball has this thing called StatCast where there's multiple terabytes of data per game, 20 times per second. Everything that happens on the field is being recorded. So that is now a huge, vast amount of information, uh, more, more than many other uh, verticals get. It's significant. Um, and then also I work I see it's a trend with uh, machine learning and artificial intelligence where uh, in the past we used to have a PhD needed to be able to crunch the numbers, so to speak, and now there's a, a whole industry that helps automate that. Um, I, I, I work for Data Robot, which created the automated machine learning field, um, but, that, but, but there's a lot to be said for taking this vast amount of information and automatically having having insights and value derived in ways that uh, might be unconventional. So in the past, you would have a data scientist 
like myself, come up with a question and come up with the approach and come up with the answer by hand. And now you can have it automated and find trends um, and how information relates in, in ways uh, that, that you haven't had. So, so that's tremendous, and that's really just starting uh, across all industries. That is fascinating. What's interesting is there could be almost like an informational divide here coming soon, right? Because if you're not... If you're not a company or organization that is at least open to making a decision uh, or at least blending your decision with some data or analytics, let's leave AI out for a second. But if you're not going down that journey some way, AI is a huge accelerator uh, from an exponential standpoint that if you don't, if you almost don't catch that, you could be left behind, right? I mean, I'm hearing that, you know, in Google's and Amazon's stock value, Wall Street is kind of looking at it saying they're so far ahead because they're using AI and it becomes a exponential snowball that they can leave people in the dust. The competitiveness may be insurmountable for other people kind of going head to head against them. So, what, what, I guess you have to kind of be open. You know, this seems to be a, not only is this providing insights, but it's a, it's accelerating almost at an accelerated pace, right? And do you see? Because one of the things I saw with Moneyball, and you probably saw it too, is there was a tremendous amount of criticism of, about the whole premise of Moneyball, in that the the book, the year that they focused on, the A's had some very good pitching, which so there were some people early on, and I spoke to Billy Bean saying. Uh, I saw him at a conference once. I said, hey, your secret's out now. And, uh, you know, I know you're making money on the book tour, and, and now he's a speaker, and everyone's using your analytic. And his response to me was, well, no, they've hired analytic people, but, and this is dated. He said, but a lot of them, when it push comes to shove, aren't using the analytics. And I think that's changed over time. But it was interesting that there was so much criticism of the findings, kind of saying, no, all this, all this is wrong. And he was saying that he was having the cake and eating it too, and that he made uh, a pretty good dime on this. He's on speaking engagements. He's a, a sought-after speaker at conferences in addition to his day job. And from a competitive set, at least for a little while, people within his baseball, the baseball business didn't agree with him. So they were, uh, we don't believe any of these numbers. And he was saying, I've got it both ways. I've got the advantage on the field and also making a, a different income because I'm speaking about it. Do you see that? Do you see like a divide happening out there with that aren't embracing this in a rudimentary way? And then as this stuff starts to accelerate with AI, they could be left behind? Exactly. And, and one of the great quotes from Moneyball, which uh, preceded Moneyball, is innovate or die. And, you know, in, in the baseball sense, the, the teams that innovate, it, you know, and, and, and I was part of that whole revolution and saw incredible pushback. But when it, when it comes down to it, if you're a team that shifts defensively and you're able to convert outs more frequently, you're going to have a huge advantage. It, you know, some of the best teams compared to the worst save about 90 uh, runs per season, which is equivalent to about nine or 10 games. Wow. And, you know, that, that, that could be the season, but, you know, in today's money, it's about 10 million a win. So, you know, you're talking $90 million just by acting on, on data just in that one defense. So, you know, you might have a great team to compensate, uh, you know, and you can eat up those eight or nine wins and still be competitive. But, you know, over the long term, 
you know, you, you, you know, if you don't innovate, other teams are going to find advantages, find undervalued players, uh, avoid risks, avoid players that are, uh, likely to be injured and to lose their effectiveness. Um, and, and, you know, and that's baseball. So yes, there is still the divide. There is a huge amount of pushback in many areas, but the teams that uh, are able, or the companies too, outside of baseball, that are able to take these recommendations and actually implement it are the ones that are going to dominate the field. So, you know, you mentioned Amazon. If you can improve your supply chain um, and offer lower cost or the same cost and get greater profit, you you could dominate. And, and that's, that's what's happening across retail and CPG is so the, the brick-and-mortar stores, unless you're selling something that, you know, is needed physically in you know, a certain time frame or they're perishable in a certain way, um, you're, you're going to possibly die, but certainly shrink dramatically. Um, in transportation, um, you know, with the logistics, I took an Uber to where I'm speaking now. So that, that's really transformative of the industry. Uh, coming up with new ideas, rework, all those uh, Airbnb are ways you can totally dominate a market um, using artificial intelligence. Yeah, that is interesting because they're actually almost starting at that place. They're saying, hey, we're going to use the data as our business model. Uber kind of uses it as a business model. We're going to use the excess capacity data to schedule rides, and that's going to be our business. You know, So they're building a platform on analytics, a business that prior to that was, you know, a, someone you call a cab. It's a very inefficient way of, of doing that. But it, it is interesting that people are almost, that companies are almost skipping right to Airbnbs. A lot of the gig economy, what they refer to as the gig economy, is, is actually building their business on the data. And with that, they have no kind of conventional, maybe conventional wisdom that was incorrect. They're just starting different lens on how to do something that they might lose some knowledge about the industry, but they can Airbnb and they've got, you have a lot more locations than Marriott does. It's, it's amazing. Something like that has grown so quickly. Don't own a lot of property, right? <laughs> they don't know. They're creating a business on the data itself and competing against global multinational competitors that have been in the business for decades. Exactly. And, and interesting, you brought up Marriott. They announced that they you know, saw Airbnb and they're going to do an Airbnb similar like branch, but where it's you know, more qualified. So it's more like a better qualified Airbnb, but you know what? It's not probably long-term competitive with Airbnb, but they're at least going to um, you know, maintain more of their business than the other hotel chains, you know, Hyatt, um, Hilton, that as of yet have not done it. So yeah, they may not dominate that way. Yeah, yeah that is interesting because I think some of those hotel chains, uh, I guess with any new innovation, they kind of laughed at that at first, right? That, you know, some some person in San Francisco is going to be leasing their loft and, it, you know, and uh, the person staying there is going to have to deal with the cat. And, you know, <laughs> but it all, you know, like, I don't think they took it. I, I guess that's where the innovation comes from. It comes from the fringe. It's not taken seriously. And then you see a company like Marriott that's saying, okay, um, we got to get into this or at least learn something about it because um, this, this isn't, this isn't going, Airbnb isn't going away. Exactly. And um, yeah, if you could innovate that way, great. Uh, there are other innovations of my 24 where you 
check in at midnight, so you get to check out midnight 24 hours later. You know, may or may not work, but um, you know, no matter what, they, they have to totally innovate of how they uh, forecast their demand, how they clean the rooms so they don't have to pay for the upkeep as much, how they understand loyalty programs and targeted marketing. You know, there's been this uh, traditional sort of way of doing things, uh, you know, marketing mix, uh, modeling, which is what you call a regression model. It's like a straightforward, decade-old um, way of doing things, but now uh, you use things like uh, text mining. So at the hotel, looking at reviews, uh, words that people put, calls people made to truly understand the customer, and then the Tying back to Moneyball, one of the most exciting things I've, I've been doing at Data Robot is there's scouting reports that scouts have, and then there's numbers like how the player executed. And one of the things in, in Moneyball and in real life, from my experience, is you know scouts would say one thing, and the numbers, so to speak, would complement or not. But now you could upload the actual text of the scouting report and use that as part of the input. So if a scout said a player was deceptive with their fastball their curveball tends to be flat, then that's one feature that helps determine if a player who's in high school will end up making the major. So you can actually use kind of subjective information if you can get it text format to help drive these. And that's, that's fascinating for me. So that's kind of the combination of you know, the journey of subjective and objective. That does get interesting, right? It becomes uh, you're taking structured and call it structured and unstructured data and combining that. So you're almost getting the, you know, but you're getting some very qualitative data and the quantitative to come up with something that's fairly unique. Exactly. And um, you know, there are things like feature importance and feature is like, a characteristic or a variable, like in, bas- in, in baseball, how hard do they hit the ball on average? What's their strikeout rate? But a feature could also be what's the sentiment of the scout? Or do the scout use you know any of the 20 keywords that are indicative of success? Because your data robot has you know, dozen plus sports teams. We find out, like for example, the subject is really high up there on the list. Like you still need the actual raw skills, so you still look at how hard or how consistent you can make contact on a pitch, but what a scout says, you know, oftentimes is, you know, the one, two, three, or four criteria for, for predicting future success. So I find that fascinating. To, to, to summarize all that, it would work. Hari, I guess this is more of a psychological question, but really would like your perspective. You're seeing the pushback. What do you think people see data that agrees with what they think? They're all for it. But when they see data that's counterintuitive to what they believe, there tends to be this huge pushback. I even experienced it myself, uh, you know, driving to my mom's house. I've always gone a certain way. I, I go down this back road that gets me on uh, the Merritt Parkway headed north a certain way. My kids one time just put it into ways and said, you know, you actually can go back and exit of getting on exit 52, if you got on exit 51, it's actually faster. And I'm thinking, well, how can I, how can that be? I'm heading away from where I'm going. But it had to do with lights and right turns and left turns. And my initial reaction was, that can't be right. And, and I'll be honest with you, I really haven't adopted that way of going to my mom. So I'm just as guilty as everyone else. It's maybe two minutes faster, but it could be 
I think if it was 10 minutes faster, I still might not even believe it. You know, it'd have to be something I'd have to try. But is it just fear of change or just coming on the numbers? Because it's all right. It's going to separate. Yeah. And, and you know, all psychological, uh, why some people change and some don't. And I also see it go the other way. And I, I love your Waze example. I've experienced that as well. You know, maybe it knows some traffic or not. So at some point, you kind of just trust, you know, you either trust it or, or not in Waze. And I tend to be the ones who just kind of blindly follow it, just thinking that we no traffic or not. But there are people that you know, go one way where you know, despite uh, either overwhelming evidence or moderate evidence, still stick to their way. And then I've been at companies where like the chief marketing officer went to a conference and comes back and says, uh, everyone of our competitors are doing AI. We need to do it. And, you know, the key point is it. They just say, we want to do something with machine learning, but don't have a specific use case or don't know what data they have or don't know what part of that data is useful. Yeah, I've also seen that irrational exuberant of just wanting to try changing things just for the sake of change. Uh, but, you know, the true success, I find, is, uh, you know, understanding what data you have or could get and then trying to see what use cases to start with simply that could uh, be practically implemented and have buy-in. You know, if there's a recommendation to uh, improve our staffing, like increase number of workers or decrease based on what we forecast and people are truly willing to try it, then let's use that as our first use case. Um, so you know, there, there's that practical middle. Sure. Yeah. This is kind of a, a tired analogy, but I think it has a lot to do with analytics. Is You know, when Sears and Roebuck first introduced the electric motor into homes. You know, it was when they were doing the catalog business. Uh, they were Amazon, I guess, before Amazon. They would have this electric motor, and instead of having it inside the dishwasher, they actually sold the motor, and then they sold appliances that you would hook up to this motor. So a dishwasher, a washing machine, different or different devices that you would, a vacuum cleaner, you would wheel this very large motor around your house, or at least that was the idea. Now, it didn't take off because the motor had to get smaller and then they sold these motors in a dishwasher, and, and that's when it really took off. I kind of see what's that similar with analytics in that oftentimes these companies, when they start this, hire some analytic people. They're, kinda, they're in a separate group, and they tend to be off to the side, similar to that motor. They're kind of making these recommendations that people may or may not adopt. But they're not in the flow of business. You know, I think the the vision of AI is it's going to be, or, or analytics, is it's going to be like electricity. It's going to be as common in your decision-making as could be seamless. But there still does seem to be, and the movie Moneyball kind of made that out, where they hired some very smart people, but no one really wanted to socialize with them. And, and, and it was kind of, they were off to the side. What are companies doing, to, or even those sports teams, how are they, instead of having it maybe off to the side, referring to it when they feel like it or when the, when that group gets very loud about a finding, is there anything that's happening that's kind of putting analytics or AI into the blood flow of companies and organizations? Exactly. And all it generally starts from the top. So we alluded to earlier, um, you know, what, kind of like groupthink, where you have information and it's applied only if it supports the decisions of the people in charge. So you know, the best way is whether it's ownership or C-level executives to say, you know, we're open to new ideas, we're open to innovation, 
um, that, you know, have that person be wise enough to do it not just for the sake of change, but to, to collect information, automate it as much as you can, ask questions, and if you could explain why the decision makes sense, you know, we call that explainability of people robots, so that, then you will implement it. Um, so it's really a, a culture that starts from the top, and even then you get resistance to it. Great book called Big Data Baseball. Uh, because the pirates with the general manager and the manager wanted to implement shifting uh, before it was popular. And players were very resistant. They would, um, uh, it, it took about three months, uh, they said in the book, for them to implement it. And it really started by having the team captain again and again uh, recommend to the players to do that position. And then once in a while, a ball would be hit where the traditional positioning, you know, the gut feel was, and it ended up being a hit. And then that kind of hit, hit the reset button, and the players got upset of using it again. But it's, it's really, you know, constant driving from the top. If you want to win a game, if you want to get to the postseason, you know, then, then leverage information that can help you win. You can find trends in player performance. Like, you know, when should you see or face? Um, what is the next pitch type coming where should you be standing before the ball is hit? You, you need that information. You're a PPG company. You're going to want to price your product accordingly so that uh, consumers buy it. If you have a flavor in the market that for some health conscious uh, capability, uh, you know, beyond uh, meat and possible meat is a huge trend now. But um, you, know, you want to be in sync with what demand is. If you're going to ignore that, it, that, that's a problem from the top of the organization. It really needs to be driven uh, top down. I, I get the sense that a data is maybe more of an opportunity or a threat. So if you take a look at some of the large retailers in the past in the United States, like a Woolworths or a Grant, those are actually before my time, but they were behemoths as large as Amazon and, and Walmart. Some of the wealthiest people of that era were from those families, similar to Amazon and Walmart today. Those companies, I think, are almost out of existence. I think Woolworths has a presence in Australia, but it's not the in every town like it used to be. And something happened there where they took time, right? But they're not in existence anymore. These were companies that had advantages in scale, barriers to entry in the industry. Just, I think if you were to go back in time and say, hey, you know, these companies aren't going to be around, people would laugh at you back then. What's interesting is some of these larger companies that aren't adopting this information, some of these companies like Uber, Airbnb, and, and how disruptive they are, it seems like that can happen much faster to a company if they don't get the data because it, the scale at which someone could exploit some of this, just the availability of capital and even the different business models, for example, Airbnb not, never really buying any real estate. Right, which was really you know a huge barrier to entry in the hotel business. It seems like the risk of not getting into these areas is much higher than ever because the ability for someone to to be disruptive is very high. Are you seeing that? Absolutely. It's um, you mentioned Sears earlier. You know, who would have thought in a short amount of time Sears would basically uh, you know be out of this? And and, and I, I recall you know I'm in Chicago where Years has been uh, when the internet first came out, they were resistant for even having a website because they thought it would uh, cannibalize people going into the stores. Uh, even if they leveraged you know, the, the website of their store location, you know, they were just against 
how that changed. And, and that, that really hurt them. Or Motorola, also another Chicago company, they uh, could have dominated. They could have been the iPhones of the world. Uh, they, they had a, a huge percentage of the mobile phone, but just wanted to kind of stay with business. And I started a mobile software firm that spanned beyond back in the day and kind of proposed the idea of you know, similar like an iTunes store, uh, but they wanted to have their operating system closed and not allow third developers to write programs and excel on it. So Apple had an opportunity to come in from being basically a, a you know a computer uh, laptop desktop into the phone business, even though it was dominated. And so who would have thought Motorola at the time would have gone from dominant to uh, you know not really in the phone business anymore? And and that happens you know in well, five year time frame, extreme rapid changes. Everyone should be. Yeah, I take a look at a company like Blockbuster in just our lifetime, did not exist, flourished, and is gone. I think there's one Blockbuster left in the United States in rural Alaska, but that's something that is in our lifetime. Like, in a, in not even our lifetime, in our adult lifetime, this company didn't exist, became huge, and then went bust. In a very short period of time, rode a wave of one technology and then got, you know, very quickly disrupted by other technologies. It is, and it, it does seem like that, the, just like maybe Moore's Law seems to be accelerating quicker, that if you don't stay on top of this, you're, some of these very large companies seem to be very, maybe much more vulnerable than historically companies of that maybe market dominance have been. Exactly. Well, the good news is there's, um, uh, going to be disruption in the industry. And the good news is, if, if you embrace that, you could become even larger than before. So, like Netflix, you're talking about Blockbuster, uh, you know, very hard to compete. They started off, instead of having people go into the Blockbuster store, they would mail it to your home. And they should, Netflix should have died as soon as there was like on demand video that was fast enough so you could stream movies safely. Um, at your home, safely meaning that the, the movie industry, you know, to guarantee they get their payments. Um, and at that point, Netflix should have died out. You don't really need to go into a blockbuster store. You don't really things back and forth. That should have died. Um, but they said, we're going to come out with their own content. So Netflix really innovated about three different times. And now they're huge. They're bigger than six. If they just stayed with the mail order business and not continue to do that. So there's an opportunity, if you do it right, to be the innovator and you're actually before the you know, startups who get venture funding uh, can disrupt you. You're raising a very good point is that the data allows you to pivot. And so the data, if you're open to it, Amazon could have just been an online book retailer. I mean, they could have stopped there. You know, now they're. They're into everything, and, and a significant amount of their revenue has nothing to do with e-commerce, and it, it's cloud-based support. They, it is interesting that some of these companies pivoting much faster, or to your point, several times, based on what they're seeing in the marketplace. It can happen to everyone, but we tend to lean on what got us successful, You know, whether it's Polaroid or Sears, or the stories are limitless, really, of companies that had a technology and saw it maybe as a threat on their own business rather than an opportunity for new business, let it get away from them. Exactly. So it's part of the innovation and then 
also speed of, of getting the insights. So the, if you do things by hand, like you have a team of data science and they're doing things by hand, number one, um, you know, it could take days or weeks or months to write these sophisticated programs and there's an extreme skill set shortage. But then the other, like, I, you know, I personally um, have about five or ten go-to machine learning algorithms, uh, linear regression, data course, boosting, and so on, TensorFlow. You know, a lot of times, based on the data, there's other methodologies. So the quicker you can get insights um, by automating, and then the, the deeper you can kind of, the wider net that you can cast by trying out different approaches uh, helps you tease the, the value uh, from the data more automatedly and quickly. So it's not just innovating, but it's innovating at a faster pace or uh, being able to take your like raw data in and convert that to value out faster than your competition. If you're a baseball team, you know, every day there's something called the waiver wire. If you could find an opportunity for a, a waiver wire is like a, a couple players that you might be able to claim and bring onto your team. If you could do that, you know, within one day uh, or within one hour, you have an advantage to get get value and, and, and avoid missing opportunities. So there's not just complete radical innovation of the business, which is extremely important. It's also that, you know, daily innovation and, and personal action. Uh, I think if you can have that combination of those two, you're going to dominate your market. Yeah, that's a great point, Ari. It's not just strategic. It day-to-day speed, being able to respond to something, being nimble, taking it in, analyzing it, and finding something and exploiting that hour-by-hour basis, you know, and really being able to, in that environment, you almost have like a radar that your competition doesn't have. Like they're, you're outmaneuvering them all in this elaborate chess game and they just don't see it. If they're not looking at the data and moving that quickly, not only are you strategically moving faster than them, but on a day-to-day basis, you're beating them in the marketplace. That if you're operating at that environment, taking in data, instead of maybe using conventional wisdom to run your business, having a fair amount of your business and decisions being fueled by data and AI, you now have a distinct competitive advantage that accelerates your business even further. So, obviously, let's talk about how a company or an organization or even a person can adopt this. There definitely seems to be, as you mentioned, some kind of openness that this data can provide value, right? There has to be some acknowledgement there that either people are not exploiting the data or there's a market opportunity or or maybe their business is on the brink. So, it's different levels of the call to action may be driven by different elements, but there's in the hero's journey, there's that call to action. It seems like that could be different things, but there's definitely an openness to, okay, there's something here. We're going to roll up our sleeves and get into it. And then it's building some skill sets internally, right? That uh, you're either bringing people in like the Moneyball story, uh, the, the movie where Brad Pitt brought in someone who knew this the, this information really well, but it's it's bringing people into your culture and um, listening to them, but you know, teaching them your business, and then they te- they look at the numbers, um, and some kind of embracing of learning that, and that's not an easy thing. Is that the first step? Is just bringing either outsourcing this with a company or bringing these people inside 
to say each company is a little bit different. You need the combination of people that can enact the change, and then either people or software you know, that that can enable that. So people with the right skill sets or software that can take data and convert that into value. Um, and, and you know, the way I, I typically approach uh, you know, data robot and other great companies is you know, what are the use cases um, that you can have and uh, you know starts with what data do you have, what data can you get, what what are you looking to optimize or what are you looking to predict? You know, are we looking to optimize our marketing or are we looking to optimize our product pricing? Are we um, a retailer looking to add new stores? Um, those are kind of like the conventional uh, use cases. And, and, and what's practical? You know, is this a 12-month journey or is this a couple-week journey? And um, you know, the, the best thing is, unfortunately, most machine learning uh, projects fail since it's, it's like underestimated of, of the cost or skill set or once they get inside, it doesn't actually get implemented in real life. So, you know, that real estate example, we worked with this retailer, you know, pretty successful that was building one new store every week in America. Um, and they would, they had a whole team dedicated just for the real estate, you know, new store analysis. So they were willing and ready to act on it. They were a success. They ended up making the Fortune 500, um, you know, being a new entrant where they weren't before. Um, they had the people, they had the data, they had the willingness to, to execute. Um, if you don't have any of those three, you know, then, then just start with a straightforward use case that is practical, that could show some measure of success. Um, you'll get buying from the company and then, you know, move on to the more, you know, long-term or, uh, you know, kind of always-on analytics, which I do at sports. It's, um, you're always looking to draft players. You're always looking to, uh, improve your strategy. That, that will never end. You're going to be on an unending journey to continue improve. So that's probably not the best person. So you start with something practical, get success, and then go to the more innovative, ongoing example. I thought what you mentioned about failing is important because I even heard that uh, criticism about Billy Bean and the Moneyball story. People would go, What's this book all about? They didn't win the World Series, you know. And right. Play, right? And people go, and the definition of some of these projects uh, may not reach their objective, but there's a tremendous amount of learning that goes in there. Like, okay, we didn't do this right, we didn't do this right, and we didn't act fast enough. You know, some of these projects may fail from an objective standpoint, but it doesn't mean that there are huge learnings that can start in these, even if it's just pointing out weaknesses around the company. Hey, you know what? This didn't work because of all these other factors, either culturally, skill set wise, ability to move on the data. Because, you know, one of the things I see out there sometimes is there's data and insights and, and the ability for a company to move fast enough to exploit it is something that it is interesting, though, that you're, the whole sports thing is, you know, you do have the analytics in the blood flow now, right? It's changed since Billy Bean said a lot of people, because his crit analysis, and this is going back like 10 years, so it was after the book came out, but when it was still kind of getting a lot of pushback, his feeling was, well, everyone's gone out and hired similar PhDs, but they're not. But they're in a room and no one's really listening to them. That has since moved to 
always on analytics. If you're now in baseball, it's moved to an adoption rate much different than that. It's in the blood flow. Analytics are being, even in the most unsophisticated team, they're being considered. Yeah, exactly. So it went from um, when I started out with that early oil story, um, I only knew about three teams doing you know, analytics, you know, the, the way we've been talking about it, like somebody taking data and, you know, really finding actual insights above and beyond what scouts would say for strategy or, or uh, injury prediction or drafting. And now, um, really only about four years ago, we finally all 30 teams uh, in Major League Baseball have at least one full-time dedicated analyst. The average is now, uh, in the last three years, the average went from one on average to five on average. Um, and then there's some teams that have 20 or more uh, you know, full-time analysts uh, you know, in, in the baseball business operation. So, yeah, I, I get, so that it basically increased fivefold in the last couple of years, and it's only increasing since now you have the StatCast data, and now you also have uh, technology like Notice, Leave, that measure uh, stress on the arm as they pitch. You have Rapsodo high speed cameras, you have drive on baseball. Uh, so, you basically have sensor biomechanics data. So I think each team is starting to hire three or four more like performance analysis coaches. So we're going to go from five to ten on average per team in the next year or two. It, 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 so everyone has access to the same information. Everyone has a team of smart people. Uh, probably half of the team are like have it in their blood. Half of them still they have the information, but as you say. Uh, you tell the manager to do X, Y, Z, and it's either ignored or pushed back upon. Uh, but, you know, by and large, it's very interesting. But the same data, you know, the same, very similar intelligence is there. So now it's who can come up with different insights using the same data. That's called feature engineering, coming up with new ways to slice and dice the data than ever before. Um, and who could do it faster? Um, is a differentiator. And then the ultimate differentiator is if you're in a market with an owner that can spend more, it is interesting how this has gone from kind of this rebel idea, and I guess that's how things get adopted, to there are some pretty high-profile managers that have been what you would consider to be very successful, like maybe managers in baseball that have taken their team to you know, one game within the World Series and has been taken out because of the resistance to analytics to be used during the game. And that's an interesting flip that now uh, some of these managers have to adopt this in the way they do things. The analytics may be telling you to do some certain things during the game. And if you push back on that, you may not be the manager. That's that's a, have gone from a very, you know, a lot of skeptics to something that people are kind of really putting their foot on the pedal and saying, this is how we're going to win. And interestingly, so, uh, uh, one of the highlights of my career was having the bottom of the ownership of the Chicago Cubs to work with Stanley to create and lead their analytics department. Then I helped them identify and hire POF teams. Um, and, and one of the earlier things we did was 
going on in your manager, and I was tasked to kind of help with the interview process. And what we did was do game simulations where we would get them, and hey, here's the situations for my fitting, so, you know, go ahead, run, meaning, you agree with these on soccer base, which release features you bring in, or do you keep your current release feature? And, you know, here's reams of information. So set up these tests, um, you know, that was, you know, never one right answer. It's just trying to understand where do they fit on the spectrum and how they were fit through problem solving using all the information that we have. And that, that was a huge criteria for evaluating the, uh, what manager they were going to And then the other thing is I teach through what is called SMWW, Sports Management Worldwide, uh, classes on baseball and analytical real-time sports, and we actually have uh, some major league managers who, who are in the course, uh, just so they can broaden their understanding of, of analytics. So they, they realize, A, it can help them, but B, to your point, you know, for two candidates that are equal, and this is true across all industries, two candidates that are equal, the one that has the analytics background, you know, has the edge. Yeah. So, so people realize that managers realize that, and they want to get better. Wow. So it's it's gone from being something that people maybe shook their heads at or laughed at to a key component that Steve Epstein's considered probably, you know, he'll go down in history as one of the best general managers of all time, definitely breaking some significant losing streaks at both Boston and Chicago. His key criteria, from what you said, was these guys have to embrace the analytic. That's going to be a key part. So even if they might have been a well-established uh, manager in baseball, Theo Epstein's saying they got to be open to some of this or they may not get the job or they won't get the job. Right? Great for me to be you know, all of them helping with that effort. Yeah. That's right. But information, whatever information you have access to, whether it's data, advanced scouting reports, your own information, watching the players, talking to them, being a mentor, being a coach, you know, put all, synthesize all that together so you can put your team in the best position to win. That's what it's all about. Yeah, it's it's really interesting that the sports analogy and the resistance in that area and the the quick adoption and almost a, a flipping of from strong resistance to really passionate embrace. It took a little time, but it's there. I guess we're going to start to see that in other organizations or, you know, at least in baseball, you could still hold on to a team as long as you're fairly profitable. But in business, you know, there isn't that maybe safety net if you're not moving as quick as your competition, you know, the dollars just won't flow to you. It'll be interesting to see how that happens across different industries as we move forward. It's a, exactly. It's a great example of, of how it works in one industry and really all over the world, the ability to let synthesize process impact on data is um, uh, you know, accelerating. I love your, your analogy to Moore's Law. It's getting faster and it's going to continue to get faster and, and those that um, you know, realize that are going to do really, really well. Um, you know, maybe not in every single case in every vertical, but they'll at least be better, much better positioned to dominate their market. And there are entrepreneurs listening. You know, there's tons of opportunity to do that next Airbnb or Waze or you know, 
Yelp or, or Netflix, etc. So it's a very exciting time. It really is. If, if you take a look at some of these business models, I think they've just they've looked at an industry and said, what's really painful? And I know you and I have traveled a lot. Getting a taxi in a suburban area to go to a, you know, an airport from in any major city was fraught with issues of, you know, whether they're actually coming for you or, or what the rate would be and how long you had to wait. Uh, that was just for business travel. And I think they kind of looked at it and said, Hey, this could be done better. You take a look at what Harry's and Dollar Shave Club have done with razors and said, Hey, buying razors is a pretty painful process at retail and it's really expensive. You know, we could change this model. So some of the, you know, what's happened in that industry and the, and the dominant brands that have maybe lost market share to upstarts, it, it's, it becomes a very interesting thing for people in the entrepreneurial area to kind of say, where is there a business that it's just not a very good service or it just doesn't seem to work for me? And how could I maybe approach that business using data analytics? And, and you know, some of it's not huge investment if you but now the bar- the barriers to entry are much different. Uber is getting into car ownership, but that's not what they started with. And I think if they get into car ownership, it's going to be autonomous cars. You know, a lot of these Airbnb, a lot of these companies aren't making the maybe the traditional barrier to entry investment and kind of rethinking the business model based on the data to get into the into the business, which is which does open up a lot of interesting op- uh, entrepreneurial opportunities across a host of uh, industries. Well said. Hey, Ari, uh, we're going to wrap this up, but where can people find you on the web? Uh, you know, you've got a wealth of information. You've been at the flashpoint of analytics and sports, analytics and business. You're now deep into AI. Where can people find you on on the internet or uh, see what you have to say on these points? Uh, anyone can reach out to me. Um, it's called A-R-I at datamobile.com or I'm, I'm a big LinkedIn fan as well. Um, and so, yeah, you can look at AriKaplan.com and I have the active uh, Twitter as well. I, uh, you know, every day uh, tweet out my thoughts and, and things on all of that subject. So those are some great ways to, uh, to find me on the web. Okay, great. Well, thanks for, let's think about redoing one of these podcasts in the, in the future to kind of take a check out on where we are, because I think right now we're starting to see this gain traction. We're starting to see a separation of the companies that are adopting it and not adopting it. And I think it'd be very interesting in like six months to a year to revisit this and say, okay, let's look at some industries or, or places that you've seen companies haven't adopted it. And, uh, you know, in the baseball, area happens, I guess, is people just start losing a lot of games. And then they kind of go, okay, something's got to change. But in business, losing customers, you know, you don't have that luxury of maybe baseball teams probably have a little bit more luxury than your average small business or mid-sized business or even large business where they, they have a kind of a safety net there with the franchise to regroup, retool. Many companies don't have that ability once the business starts to go south because you're now having to start to invest and rejigger your business while your existing business is losing money. And that's a, that's, that's a very painful process for a lot of even large organizations. To, it's hard to shift on the fly when things start to go bad. It's easier to do when things are going well. So maybe we touch base in six months or a year to kind of reassess this, this whole AI, the analytics area, and see what progress has been made, uh, where the trends are. No, I'd love, love to come back. And it was a pleasure being on here. It was a lot of fun in our conversation. and. 
yeah, I'd love to see where things end up in, in six months. So what, what's happening back on? Okay. And thank, thank you for your, for your time. Sure. Thank you, Ari.